morning, everyone. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Exodus. Really excited to get to start this new study. I'm always happy to launch into a, a study of a new portion of God's Word with you than we've been before. And if you were not with us in our study of Genesis, uh, those messages are online. But we've done a study of all of God's faithfulness to his people and what he's done at the beginning of creation and creating all things and setting apart a people for his namesake and showcasing his covenant faithfulness to generation after generation. And uh, Genesis ends with God's people in Egypt, and it actually ends in a coffin in Egypt. And Exodus begins exactly where Genesis left off. Uh, we love stories in our family. I don't think our family is unique in that, but we read a lot of books. We read books aloud to our children. We like to watch movies, if you can find some that are half decent, and you can sift through and see where does this story tell the truth about life as God made it? Where does it run with the grain of reality and have some kind of redemptive purpose, some kind of rescue, some kind of evil plot twist where there's suffering and hardship in parts of the movie that you just weren't, wish weren't there because they're so hard, but then there's breakthrough and there's hope and there's redemption. And then where do they run against the grain and tell the opposite of truth as God has made it known in his world? Exodus is the first story of redemption that we have recorded in God's word. And the glorious news of it is that it's true. And it sets the stage for every other story and the greatest story of redemption through Christ Jesus. So if you are able, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. We are going to be... <coughs> Only in the first 14 verses this morning. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers in all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. 
and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Seems like a strange place to stop reading. And let's pray. Father, your people come to you with open hearts and open Bibles. Would you speak in Jesus' name? Amen. You may be seated. So I want to give you a little bit of an aerial view of the book of Exodus as we dive into our study so that we can be students of God's word together, but also so that we can orient ourselves as to where we are in God's word and pick out these themes as we study the book together. So first, the title of the book is the Greek word for departure or the way out is what it means. And it comes from language that's used in Exodus 19, where it says that after they had left Egypt or departed from Egypt. And so this is a story of God delivering his people and them departing from the land of slavery into his freedom as his people. The timing of the Exodus was around 1440 BC, or almost 1500 years before Christ came. And um, you can see that Solomon's temple was built around 960, and it, they recorded their life together and dated everything from this redemptive event, just like we record our lives and the events of our lives from the time of Christ. So we are in the year 2023, and that's because we are 2,023 years from the life and times of Jesus, the Messiah. And the whole world that denies him dates their life by him. And in the same way, the Israelites would date their whole lives by the Exodus. And so when Solomon builds his temple, they say this temple was completed 480 years since their departure out of Exodus. And so that confirms this kind of time frame of around 1440 B.C. And you can Google and look up the story of the Exodus and you can do research online. And what you will always find is an unbelieving world that's gotten too smart for God. And they call the Exodus a mythology, that there's hard to find archaeological evidence in Egypt for uh, the Jews being slaves there. And we can know, one, that the story is true because God has declared it to be true in his word. And the unbelieving mind doesn't make room for what God has said. It doesn't make room for the miraculous, just like they deny that God created the heavens and the earth, so they deny that God would bring his people out of slavery in Egypt with great signs and wonders. But Jesus affirms the story of the Exodus, and he quotes from Exodus and attributes it to Moses, calling it the book of Moses. And so we know that Moses wrote this true account of God delivering his people. And so if you were going to pick a theme for this whole book as a, a banner over our time together, I think a fitting title for this book would be Redemption for the Glory of God. This book is all about God saving and redeeming his people 
for his own namesake. So Exodus is an account of the great redemptive act of God in Israel's history. This is, for all intents and purposes, as you think about it, the cross of Christ before the cross of Christ. This is the redemption that would point ahead to the cross of Christ. And it's what, in their songs, they would sing about and remember with worship. So they would look back on the Exodus in remembrance and worship, and they would look up from the Exodus in hope for God's future deliverance. It's the focal point of all their worship and life together. And interestingly, the book of Exodus in the Hebrew begins with the word and. So I don't know where I was in all the Sunday school storyboarding and felt boards of my childhood, but I remember it being years until I realized the connection between Genesis and Exodus, that we were actually continuing in the story where Genesis left off and that it wasn't just some disconnected random story uh, of like, well, they just began in Egypt. But this is beginning with, and then, from the time when Joseph was buried, we're picking up where we left off. And it is stunning the contrast between Genesis and Exodus, where Genesis begins in a garden in the presence of God. And through sin, they have to leave God's presence, and they spiral into death and chaos. And you see family dysfunction and God's faithfulness through all of it. But they go from life in the garden in the presence of God to a coffin in a land that would become a land of slavery. Exodus begins in the land of slavery, and it ends with God again bringing his presence to dwell again among his people at the end of Exodus So this is God's account of his deliverance of his people out of slavery and into his presence, made a nation to be ruled by God's good law, the law that would show them their need for Christ and would display God's holiness. We want to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as we study this book, knowing that Jesus said all the scriptures testify about him. And when he's on the road to Emmaus and he's unfolding the scriptures and showing the disciples all the things in the scriptures concerning himself, it says that he began with Moses and then with all the prophets. So he would go to the Exodus and show them how all of the content was pointing ahead to Jesus. We see Moses as a type of Christ. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses looks at the people and says, God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brethren, and it's to him you shall listen. So as we look at Moses, we're going to see ways in which he is a foreshadow or a type of the Christ who is to come. In Jude chapter 5, I mean Jude verse 5, sorry, Jude says that it was Jesus who saved his people out of Egypt. Jesus is here, and he is the one delivering his people. In Luke chapter 9, at Jesus' transfiguration, when it says Moses and Elijah come and they're ministering to him, says they spoke to Christ about his departure, which was to happen at Jerusalem. And that word is exodus. So this exodus is pointing ahead to Jesus' own exodus and the cross as he would lead his own people out of slavery and into the promised land of his rest. So exodus is all about Jesus, casting a long shadow from their slavery in Egypt and their deliverance all the way 
to the cross of Christ. So now I want to turn with you to our text for this morning. You'll note uh, in these first 14 verses that God is not mentioned explicitly. There are times in our lives, in your life, where it feels exactly that way. Where it just seems that God is missing. Like he's forgotten about you. Like you are at the beginning of a story that you have no idea how it ends. And it just feels like the land of slavery. And so my prayer for us is that from this text, we would learn to trust God in the midst of bitter providences. This providence of God is a term that refers to his sovereign care. It's not just that he's in control, but that he is good and that he cares for you. And we can trace his providence even when he's not explicitly mentioned. We can see him working all things according to the counsel of his will And a lot of times in ways that are very confusing and hard to understand. They just feel bitter. So I want to look at three aspects of God's providence with you this morning. And the first is the surprising nature of God's providence. Verse 8 takes a staggering turn for the children of Israel in chapter 1. You can see that they had been shown favor from Joseph's rule over Egypt, he was second in command, and so the people of Israel enjoyed the best of the land of Egypt, and they enjoyed the favor of God in Egypt and the favor of Pharaoh in Egypt. But then in verse 8, it says, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. There was no longer kindness shown to the people of Israel for Joseph's sake. And this king is one who would truly symbolize the seed of the serpent that was prophesied of in Genesis 3.15 where God tells the serpent that there would be enmity between his offspring and the offspring of the woman. And so Pharaoh and the Egyptians in this story truly symbolize the seed of the serpent that come against the seed of the woman and have true hatred for God and his people. One throughout, he is one that throughout Exodus would symbolize satanic opposition to Christ and to his people. And so in verse 10, he says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, the Egyptians set taskmasters over the Jews to afflict them with heavy burdens. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. I just want to sit in that with you this morning and you hear the word of God describing the state that Israel lived in for 400 years. Not just to move on too quickly as we go from there to the story of Moses and we go to deliverance. Just like many times in your own life, 
you read the Bible and you think that it's all deliverance for other people and you don't see that there are, the Bible is telling a true story that describes how God works in the lives of his people. And sometimes your life is more slavery than freedom. Where it feels like heavy burdens, affliction, bitterness, ruthless treatment. And to top it off, in the balance of chapter 1, which we'll get to next week, Pharaoh, when he realizes he cannot keep the people of Israel from growing by ruthless oppression, he commands all of his people to snatch newborn infant sons from Hebrew families and to throw them into the Nile. You cannot imagine that kind of suffering and terror and agony And the whole time crying out, God, where are you? And I think some people would try to make peace with the suffering or the agony of their lives by saying, well, God's not in control. They adopt a different view of God than a God who is sovereign and good. So they either believe that God is not good and they run from him, or they settle for believing that God's not sovereign and not in control and so have a low view of God. But God's word is clear. In Ephesians 1 verse 10, Paul writes that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. We know that he is good. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect. All of his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. The truth is, friends, that in the midst of all the agonies and the trials of your life, God has never sinned against you. He has been good and faithful, and there are a lot of ways where he has allowed agony in ways that are hard to understand. We know that God was in control here in Genesis 15 when Abram asked God how he's to know that he will inherit the land that God had promised. God makes a covenant with Abram and gives him a promise. Genesis 15, 13, and 14. Moses recounts, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So I want us to read this story together knowing the affliction and the hardship and the trials that much of this church has gone through, that we've gone through this past year. There's, I, I can look at every row and see the questions of God and a, a non-understanding of how, God, could you have let this happen? And this could be true of the greatest trials of your life or the everyday frustrations where There is confusion in God not answering your prayers how you hoped. That you you longed for God to work one way and 
he said wait, or he said no, or he worked another way. And there's not a Christian in the room who doesn't know this disorienting sadness or confusion or longing. Times when God acts so contrary to how you're praying that you think, God, I thought I knew you better than this. I I thought that we were closer than this. I felt that way before, have you? Like, God, I thought I kind of had an inside track on you being my father and like that this, I, I feel like I don't know you from this. There's times when you're left singing the first two verses of Psalm 13 that says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, What's important as we come through this story is I wanted to come down into the pain and the suffering and the sorrows of your life. To know that the the Bible comes into, God comes into our real sorrow and our real suffering. And he brings us up from there in hope, but not always in the timing or in the ways that we've asked him to or longed for him to. There are times when those first two verses of that psalm take longer to sing than you wanted. The psalm does not end there. The psalm ends with pinning in faith, not because the circumstances have changed, in the same sitting, singing, but I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Holy One because He has dealt bountifully with me. So there, there needs to be a remembering of how God has been faithful to us in Christ as we pin the verses of sorrow and longing. And He is doing that in us. He is teaching us how to sing, how to pray in faith, how to hope. And so the first time you sing this song, you may learn to write the two, first two verses, and that's where you put your pen down. And then he walks with you and he stays present with you and more hardship comes and you write the verses again and you make it further in the psalm and you sing. So my prayer for this morning and for our church and for our life is that we will learn to keep singing and to keep trusting God even when it looks like God is working against his own plan. When it when it feels like God is working against his own goodness, that we would sing like sin, like when it feels like sin and death have had the last word, that we would keep singing with our eyes fixed on Jesus. I, I've, I'm going to tell you more about this at, towards the end of our time together, but I've printed out two hymns for you um, because it would be really long to read all of them to you in the sermon. We need to sing songs that tell the truth about God and about his ways until our hearts join in. And William Cooper in God Moves in a Mysterious Way, which has been printed for you in full at the back, 
It says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Now, I'm not going to move up so quickly from the bud having a bitter taste. I think sometimes we can move ahead so quickly that people in their sorrow feel left behind. And there are times in your life where its purposes do not seem to ripen fast. It just tastes like a bitter bud. And you can know, you can trust God that the flower will be sweet, but you need to have songs that you sing in the waiting. The bud was not all bitter for Israel, even here. So the second aspect of God's providence, there is is a surprising nature of it, sometimes confusing nature of God's providence. But we also see his faithfulness in his providence. The entire point of the first seven verses of this text is to showcase the miraculous multiplication of the people of Israel, how they came and they were only 70 in number. Or in other texts, it says few in number. And God works in them miraculously to keep his promise to multiply them and to make them a great nation. Even in the midst of their agony and their sorrow and their suffering, he is keeping his promise to Abraham to bless them and to grow them in the midst of their affliction. And so in verse 5, it says the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. And then in verse 7, you can see you can underline all these different words that are used for the same as in the created, at created order, the mandate at the order of creation of be fruitful and multiply. And you see when God blesses his creation, you see it teeming and swarming with life. And that is exactly the language that's used here for the children of Israel as they are fruitful and they multiply and they increase greatly and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was teeming with Israelites. They, they were growing as a nation in the midst of their agony and their suffering. Verse 12 says, The more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And in Exodus chapter 12, we will see that there's an estimate that by the time of the Exodus, they were about a million people strong. So they go from, in 400 years, 70 people to 1 million because of the blessing of God in the midst of sin against them and oppression against them, that God was remaining steadfast to his promise to make them a great nation. So much so that this would be the beginning of their songs. In Deuteronomy, they're charged when they bring an offering to recount God's goodness to them as a people. And they're told in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 5, when you make your offering, you shall make a response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. Or in Psalm 105, which is sometimes called the Exodus Psalm, recounting all of God's faithfulness to his people in bringing them out in this great deliverance, And the song begins with Israel coming to Egypt and Jacob sojourning in the land. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. 
So we see God keeping his promises, just not in all the ways that they were longing for. God was still showcasing his faithfulness where they could see his goodness even in the midst of great sorrow. And there were generations of Israelites likely praying and longing for God to deliver them from the land of slavery and bring them into the land of promise like he had promised to Abraham. And they're praying and waiting and only see the freedom and the land on the other side of glory. And God was not less faithful to them than he was to the generation that came out. So God is faithful in his providence. And then last, we see God's care and his wisdom in his providence. One of the things that God was doing in allowing his people to be afflicted for 400 years is preparing them for deliverance. He was preparing their hearts to be set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Rather than letting them settle comfortably in Egypt, forgetting God and his promises there, he was preparing them for home. This is a huge way that God uses suffering in our own lives is to uproot when we get too settled here, when we get too earthly-minded and lose sight of God and His promises or become consumed with the world and its pleasures, God will use some great sufferings in our lives to uproot some of our feelings of being at home here in order to fix our hearts and our minds on Him and cause us to know Him. Through the pain of suffering, their hearts were tuned to what is true. Their longings were turned away from longing to be in Egypt or longing for what's easy to a longing for God. And they're left crying out to God for salvation. Now, God used suffering to bring their hearts into alignment for what is true. They always needed God. They always were desperate for God. And in his mercy, he let them to feel and to know their desperation for him so that they would cry out to him in a poverty of spirit. So he's preparing his people for deliverance. He's also going to showcase his glory in the display of his power. So we know that the beauty and the glory of sunrise comes only after the night. And it is the same for God's people that he says in his words, sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. But the greater the night, the darker the night, the greater the need, the greater the de desperation and the hopelessness, the greater God's power and miraculous sufficiency and glory are shown to be when he comes through in love for his people. So real practically, I I saw this last night in our family devotions, looking at Mark chapter 2, when Jesus heals a paralytic. And we're really trying to get ourselves into the story and think, boys, how do you think this man felt about being paralyzed his whole life? When he's at school and the other kids go to play, and they're running around and he can't move, 
when he looks at everybody else's life and they don't seem to be suffering in the same way as he is. But what a privilege for this man to be used for thousands of years as an example of the saving power of Jesus. That when he comes through and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. This brother's life is showing to so, show that his greatest need was not the healing of his legs, but the forgiveness of his sins. And his story has been told wherever the gospel is preached that Jesus has the power to set people free from sin and to heal them physically for whatever ails them as well. And there was a lot of his life where he could have judged God and his goodness by his suffering, by his affliction, instead of recognizing that the suffering and affliction of his life were really a platform for the glory of God so that God's glory and his worth and his goodness could be seen through his life. Or one that God used a lot in my life this last year was in John 21 where the disciples are up all night and they catch no fish. And a lot of times in life, you can feel like you are fruitless and like you've caught nothing and like it is just one long night. But without the night of catching no fish, it is not a miracle when you see this haul of fish that Jesus brings into the boat so that his power and his glory are clearly seen. He, he is not to be sh- he's not shown to be glorious and worthy and supreme over all of his creation and kind if they had just been killing it all night. And then he just adds to them slaying it, fishing, with his own haul of fish. And so the darkness of the night prepares the way for God to use your life for glory to shine through. God tells Pharaoh in Exodus 9.16, For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Multiple times in Egypt, God says he will get glory over Egypt and all their hosts. And multiple times in Exodus, he says, so that you will know that I am the Lord. God is working the circumstances of their life to showcase his glory and his worth so that the world around them and so that they would know the worth and the glory of God. You also see, we're talking about the, the wisdom and the kindness of God's providence. We see it in him preparing them to be delivered and in using their lives as a platform for his own glory. We also see his glory in the display of his grace and his goodness to them. They got the knowledge of God in addition to the display of his worth with their lives. He was giving them the gift of intimacy with him, of knowing him more. The cross comes to the Israelites in the process of saving them and in the process of letting all his goodness pass before them. It wasn't Egypt that he saved. It was Israel. He, in his cross comes to them in the process. The, the suffering of the cross comes in the process of leading them through to resurrection. And this is God's way. In spite of all of their suffering, in spite of all of our suffering, it is not the wrath for our sin that we deserve against the Holy God. In fact, it's precisely to deliver them from that death of God's wrath 
that he sent the affliction and the suffering in the first place. And I think I, I've been here this last month. But many times we're embittered against the suffering and the hardship of our lives, assuming that we could be saved or made whole without them. And so we judge God because we, we want him to save us some other way. We want to be delivered some other way. So we pray things like, God, I want Jesus to increase and I want to decrease in my life. I want you by any means necessary to receive glory from my life, but not that way, God. God is wise as the potter. He is working and shaping with great care and precision that he might heal us and that we might experience him and his salvation. So Hosea prophesies in Hosea 6, 1 through 3. He's calling to the people who need to return to the Lord. He says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. It's, it's this picture of a doctor needing to set a bone so that it can be healed and whole. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. You could see in this exhortation, there is a tendency in us to resist coming to the Lord or pressing on to know the Lord because after two days he will revive us and on the third day he will raise us up and we just feel like we have lived these days of not being revived, of not being healed. It just feels like I've been torn open without the healing because God's timing is not our timing. So how does this how does this apply to you? You look at Israel's suffering and how God's working and moving in their lives. Well, one of the things, one of the things that God is doing through the suffering and the hardships of your life is saving you. He is saving you. He is using all the agonies and the trials of your life to produce faith in you and glory for you. This is all, you can see it, you just go to the book of 1 Peter and you can see the genuine testing of our faith that results in praise and glory and honor when we see him or after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will himself, he's not going to outsource it, he will restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. And so as you live in between these things, he says these sufferings of your life are producing for you an eternal weight of glory far beyond what you can compare to the sufferings of this life. And so if the sufferings feel overwhelming, how much more the weight of glory that is coming, that he is working them to produce for you. And so let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust themselves to a faithful and just creator while doing good. The refiner's fires 
purifying your heart and your life and your faith so that you know him and can be made like him. Robert and Nancy Wolgamuth, or Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth, if you know her writings, wrote in their book, You Can Trust God to Write Your Story. The hardest parts of the story God is writing in your life are not random or meaningless. They are full of purpose. And in due time, all that he has intended for you and for his world will come true. And in the meantime, he will always be with you. And that's a truth you can always trust. That is the hope that even though God is not explicitly mentioned in our text, he was with them. And you could see that in the way that he blessed them and multiplied them and was working this great deliverance, even though they were in chapter one. And so that's our exhortation this morning is that even though you are in the night, even though you're in the first two verses of the psalm, you look to Christ and you keep singing. There is fellowship with him in the midst of his sufferings. That God is giving you Christ and Christ-likeness in the midst of your trials. And he's teaching you to treasure those things. He's teaching you to treasure Christ above the thing that you're longing for. Teaching you to treasure Christ and Christ's likeness so that if he's using even this to produce a Christ-likeness that is pleasing to him, then you say, I will bless your name. The book that blessed me most this last year that I've told you guys in a storied way was hard, was Samuel Rutherford's The Loveliness of Christ. Uh, He wrote a lot of letters exhorting people to trust Christ and delight in Christ in the midst of suffering. Somebody took excerpts from his letters and like like a highlights cliff note version of it, which, amen, anybody ever use those? So if you can get cliff notes on a Puritan, that's, that's good news. I'll read that. And they titled the cliff notes of his letters, The Loveliness of Christ. And this quote comes from that book. Rutherford writes, Whether God come to his children with a rod or a crown, if he come himself with it, it is well. Welcome, welcome Jesus, what way soever thou come. If we can get a sight of thee, and sure I am, it is better to be sick, providing Christ come to the bedside and draw the curtains and say, Courage, I am thy salvation, than to enjoy health, being lusty and strong, and never to be visited by God. That is truth. That is truth. Rutherford pulls straight from the pages of Scripture that if God himself come with the suffering, that it is worth the suffering to have fellowship with him than to have all the pleasures and the riches of Egypt and never to be visited by God. He is working, beloved, because he loves you. And there is so much that you're going through now that is unseen or unknown, but you can trust him and the cross of Christ stands over your life just like Exodus will point to it to say you can know that he loves you and is for you 
And if he did not spare his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ freely give you all things, even if right now he takes away? So this is my main prayer for our church in closing, is that we would trust God in the midst of bitter providences, trusting him in the night before the daybreak, trusting him when you don't understand that we would look to the author of our salvation to author our story as well. And that we would keep singing through verses of sorrow into choruses of joy and that you would defiantly cry into the night. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me in the past. Even if right now my heart is crying, how long, O oh Lord? And so to that end, I want to point you to our Bible reading plan that goes through the Psalms each day that give voice to these kinds of songs in the night. And then also a resource that our family has greatly benefited from called Happy Hymnody. And I have printed off in the back, uh, just as you exit on your left, two hymns that I printed from that website. With, so that link will be there for your family to use but if you want to sing and lead your family in singing or as a community group, sing timeless truth about God from his word, voicing faith, no matter whether you're singing in the night or in the day, uh, it is a great resource for you. And I printed off uh, two hymns for you. One is God Moves in a Mysterious Way, which I quoted earlier about the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And then also, whatever my God ordains is right. And I want to close by reading you the words of this hymn. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all. And so to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait his day. And patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right. Though now this cup in drinking may better seem to my faint heart. I take it all unshrinking. My God is true. Each morn anew. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart. And pain and sorrow shall depart. Whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken, though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all, and so to him I leave it all. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the sufficiency of your word and for the greatness of your salvation.
Lord, we are in desperate need of saving. We are in desperate need of your sanctifying work. And Lord, the truth is, we think that we need a little bit of saving at this point. We think that your saving work has done enough and that the measures that you take don't need to be too drastic. Lord, we want to know Christ, but we want to do it without his sufferings. Father, please, would you give us grace to take content what you have sent and to learn to fellowship with you in the midst of the sufferings, not just waiting for you to take the trials away, to seek you when times are good, but that you would use the pains and the sorrows and the trials of our lives, no matter how everyday and mundane or devastating and gut-wrenching, would you use them to draw us near so that we can cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us, that we would know and believe that you are near to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit, and that we would not judge you, your character, and your ways from our limited perspective, knowing that you are working and that the verse one of our suffering is not the complete song, that opening chapters of our sorrows are not the complete story, that you are working and in the end, it will all be made right. Please help us to trust you and to love you and to entrust ourselves to you. God, give us grace to press on to know the Lord. In Jesus' name.